Patty, mm-hmm. to kick off today's episode, I want to talk about my growing up. Okay. So my grandma passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, my relatives have been going through all the things she left behind. And it's a pretty slow process because she lived in the same house for over 70 years. So you can imagine that she accumulated a lot of stuff over that time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so amazing. Like 70 plus years of memories right there. Wow. Yeah. So recently, one of my uncles brought some boxes of her stuff to one of our family get-togethers. And inside one of them, we found all of these photos of the grandkids from over the years. It was basically like going through the equivalent of like a scrapbook or a photo album of my life. Oh my God, little wee Elizabeth, please, can I see? Please, 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 can I see? Were you like the size of a thimble? (laughs) Nope. So... What was interesting for me was remembering how confident I felt during those phases of life, or at least some of them. For example, there's this picture of me when I'm about seven, I think, and I'm wearing this hideous oversized t-shirt that I had painted (laughs) myself with. Uh You remember those puffy craft paints? Oh, yes. I remember being in the 90s. (laughs) And I have this headband that I made out of Legos and this little tote bag that I had also made myself like I sewed it. And I distinctly remember making that headband and that bag and not giving a damn what anyone thought about them. I was like, this is who I am. Deal with it. Oh, that's so good. But then there were these pictures of me going through adolescence where you can see that I was really trying to figure out who I was. Like my expressions are less comfortable in the photos. Mm. I'm wearing different clothes and Mm -hmm. doing things that related to my hobbies at the time. So like in one photo, I'm freezing. Wait, as in cold? As in breakdance freezing. What? And so you were a breakdancer? Wait a second. Hold on a second. Did you do you, can you still do breakdance moves? Um Did you did you dance fight people? Okay, so many questions. I will answer one, and that is the last time I checked, I could still turtle. Oh, we are dance fighting. I challenge nope. you to a dance fight. Yes. Nope. Uh, and I'm popping and I'm locking out. So anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was trying on all these identities and I never feel like I really got back to that self-assurance I remember having as a kid. I mean, memory is a funny thing, and I could be remembering things totally wrong. But the way it is in my mind is that I had this confidence in who I was that even today I feel like I occasionally still struggle with. Hmm. And this feeling that I'm still searching for who I am is one of the reasons, among many, that I was so envious of today's guest because she talks with such authority about knowing who she is. So, so true. Okay, pals. Today, we are chatting up Ann Yoshida. She's a world champion and Paralympian paddler. She helps expand beach accessibility and water programs with Access Surf. She sprints in a kayak. She paddles insanely long distances. She surfs humongous waves. On top of that, she has a bachelor's degree in speech pathology, a master's in rehabilitation counseling, and a doctorate in occupational therapy. And fueling all this is a belief that I find incredible. I believe that when we focus on being normal, we exclude the possibility of being extraordinary. Okay, so what is normal? And how does that hinder us from reaching extraordinary? Get ready to investigate the unimaginable, pals. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them.
I look at the water. One, it's a training area where, you know, now that I'm competing in, in competitions for surfing and paddling, it is my training, but it also is this thing of connecting back to the people. So if you look at a map, you see the Hawaiian Islands in the middle of a big ocean, big blue ocean. And that big blue ocean is what connects us to other continents. As I'm traveling around the world, what I find is that the ocean is what connects me to the Aina and to the water. It's a spiritual connection. And so I could be you know, wherever I am in the world, I could very well be on the water that is in my home, you know, because of that cycle of the water. And to me, what it means is that my identity is solid, that I should be proud of who I am. Anne's connection to the ocean runs deep. She's spent a good chunk of her life pursuing outdoor passions that are all water-based. But it's not just where she plays or things that she does on the water. Anne identifies as Native Hawaiian. In Hawaiian culture, water is divine. You know, like the ocean connects us all, right? We're one ocean. So it's really like it embodies this concept of aloha, like where godly love, accepting and embracing of others, connecting with others, and really uniting with others so that we have power to do whatever we desire to do. And I think that like it always connects me. It grounds me back to those beliefs. You know, I read something where you said that being on the water is the closest that you can get to heaven on earth. What do you mean? I mean, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I think that power of knowing where you come from and that identity and that culture that I have, that's that's really the power. And it's like when you have that that's like aloha. So aloha is like alo is like godly and ha is like the breath of life, right? So God's breath of life comes to you. And so when you know that identity, when you know that you're connected, aloha really does flourish and expands. And so that's like heaven on earth to me is knowing that and feeling that power. Anne's connection to the water was indispensable when her life changed forever. Do you feel comfortable talking about your accident? Um, you know, I'd rather focus on what I've done rather than, like, what accidentally happened to me or what happened to me. To me, like, at this point of my life, it's, um, there's so much more to talk about than a crash. <laughs> Okay. Like I could say a little bit about it. So about 20 years ago, I was involved in a motor vehicle crash where someone failed to yield at a turn light and crashed into my side of the car. Mm -hmm. From that motor vehicle accident, the impact made my aorta rupture. And then I had to go into surgery, emergency surgery. Um, was in an induced coma for a couple of weeks. Well, actually more than two months. Oh. And when I woke up, they didn't know you know, what my recovery was going to be like. Um, I ended up being paralyzed and life as I knew it uh, would never be the same. So in rehab, I immediately asked for to jump in the pool 
and my physical therapist and occupational therapist were down to let me doing that. They didn't have a lift back then, you know, it was like 20 years ago. So the only way I could get in there was um, to either get pushed in or to like transfer onto the floor and then into the pool. And I, I really don't like transferring on the floor. I didn't have a lot of strength. Mm. I only had the use of my one arm and my left arm was really, really weak. Okay. And so I asked them to just like, dump me into the water so they tipped my wheelchair into the water oh and i jumped in the water and then you know it was like the best thing and feeling i felt for a long time you know after being in the hospital and uh just like confined to bed along for a long time even though it was just a pool in chlorinated water that was super stink <laughs> i I felt free and um, so did my pants. My pants fell off and I didn't know it because I have a different sensation. Yeah. Um, and I was swimming around in the pool with no pants. That was fun. <laughs> but my therapist was like, hey, put your pants on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Getting back in the water was a huge win for Anne. It propelled her to push herself in her rehab and she began to view recovery differently. During physical therapy, after your uh, your your crash, your physical therapist told you that the goal of PT was to regain normal function. When you heard that, what was your reaction? I just was going along. I didn't know what I was doing back then in therapy. So my reaction was, okay, that's what I'm going to do. But I actually found out that I could do things differently and still get the same results and still have a functional life. It's just not what people think is typical. You know, like I don't have to be that typical to be able to have my role in society, to feel that power of being more than what I thought I was before. I don't want to focus on being normal the rest of my life. You know, I don't want to focus on walking because walking is super overrated, by the way, you know. <laughs> yeah. So when I once I let go of that getting back to normal thing. I was able to really see my potential in society and really get to understand the interdependence that I have with others, you know, because I have just as an important role as anyone else. This is when Anne started to form her belief that normal should not be the target. In order to get beyond normal, she'd have to adapt and break down barriers, but not ones that she created, walls and boundaries others put around her. And this truly came to light for Anne when she was finishing up college in 2002. I really love art. And so I decided I was going to take a ceramics class because I wanted to throw clay on a wheel. And the person that I had asked if I could do that, you know, he was like a professor. And he said, I don't think you could do it. Mm -hmm. So I had asked the, a sculpture uh, slash welder to make me a seat with a little armrest that allows me to lean on the armrest while I'm throwing. So when you picture someone who throws on the potter's wheel, you don't picture someone with no core muscles and who's in a wheelchair. Just like when you picture a surfer, you picture someone who's like, you know, dark and got muscles, upper body strength and, you know, strong and healthy. Even when you think of a kayaker, so I don't fit all those pictures that society has of those type of people. Mm -hmm. So that normalcy is like that typical what people picture, what people think you should be. And then you can show them and repaint the picture that it doesn't have to be that way. It can be something else. 
So I always tell myself that I need to repaint the picture of what a person looks like. I knew that I needed to get back in the water when I moved back home. And when I got home, the guy that I was dating at the time, you know, he knew I was a surfer and, you know, he he wanted to take me out in the water. And so we tried. He carried me in the water. I got on a surfboard. I didn't know anything about it, how to be in a on a surfboard with paralysis and no feeling from my chest down. And it really was not a good experience for me. So I decided not to surf again. <laughs> I decided surfing was something that I have to put away. Anne didn't stay out of the water for long. She couldn't help but be drawn to the ocean. In 2004, wanting to get back on the water, Anne met with a group of paddlers from Access Surf. It's a nonprofit based in Honolulu that offers a variety of programs for people with disabilities. When I came home, I hooked up with Greg Howe, and then I met a whole bunch of people. Rich Julian, John Greer, Christina, Donna Zane, Jeff Sampaga, all of those guys, they're like old school Hawaii athletes that have disabilities. And we did a lot of things together at the time. Um, it was like a community of sports. They were really the people who catapulted my experience as a surfer. And I remember the day that I went into the water with Access Surf like tandem surfing and I had never tandem surfed before with someone and I didn't like it actually I I told him to get off because I don't like people directing my my wave <laughs> <laughs> so I told him to get off and I surfed myself and after that I never tandem surfed again now I tandem with my dog <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm in the ocean and surfing like, people don't separate me. I could be surfing with a professional surfer. They don't know that I have a disability until I get out of the ocean. So it becomes very equalizing. And so there's empowerment there. In 2007, Anne decided to challenge herself by paddling in a race called Duke's Ocean Fest. While there is a winner, it's not a true competition. It's really a celebration of the legacy of Duke Kahanamoku. It's about a 12-mile prone or stand-up paddle from Hawaii Kai to the Duke statue on Waikiki. And according to Anne, it should take about an hour to complete. It took her three. 20 minutes into it. My neck was in such pain, and I was like, there's no way I can do this race. I said, I'm going to paddle to shore. Well, as soon as I decided I was going to paddle to shore, I found this water bottle, and it wasn't like a flimsy water bottle. It was one of those um, really Gucci water bottles that were, it had some good um, structure to it. And I put that under my chin, and I was like, oh, yeah, that would work. So it like basically gave me a chin rest, the ocean. And then I said, I can do this for a little longer. So I'm Pally and I, and I just get back like maybe two, two breaks later, you know, which is like the equivalent of two beaches down um, towards the race. I was like, there's no way I can't do this anymore. There's a little beach over there. I'm going to paddle in. And a pot of, I mean, a bunch of turtles came around and I was like, all right, these turtles are telling me to keep going. So I'm going to go. So I kept going. So the next part was like this little black point area where you're coming around and I was like, okay, there's a beach right over there. I can go in there and then I could wave someone down, get on the bus and have them take me to my truck so I can get to my wheelchair. And 
a pod of 40 dolphins start jumping and spinning right in front of me, like 10 feet away. And I was like, I, I got energy. There's still energy left. And so then I paddle some more and then I go around Diamond Head. And it's just like, you know, I got like three more miles left. And I was like, I cannot do it anymore. Diamond Head is really rocky and there's like a lot of um, currents and stuff. So it's, it feels like you're not moving. And I was like, that's it. Kaimana's is right there at the beach. I'm going to go to the beach and I'm going to have the person that's with me go grab my truck and bring it to me so I can get my into my wheelchair and then done. I'm not, I'm going to say I never even paddled it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> what happened was a monk seal came right next to me. And he turned on his back and looked at me and was just paddling with, or like, you know, just strolling around along while I was paddling. And I was like, oh my goodness, if I fall off of this, I'm going to die. Because I feel like monk seals are like dogs and they might be able to bite me or something. So I, I just was feeling very uncomfortable. Uh -huh. But then I also was realizing, hey, I can put up some speed a little bit more. I have more energy. I was like, okay, I can get through this. So I like paddled some more and I had like a mile left or a little bit less than a mile left. And I could see on the beach, like by the statue, there's like this red like person with something red on. And I was like, hey, I'm going to paddle to that person. And I started paddling and paddling and paddling. And then I realized that that was like my best friend who was pregnant and she came to see me, you know, finish the race. Uh -huh. And it was just like pretty amazing that race because one, it told me that even though I feel like I have, I can quit or I should quit, I actually have a lot more in me than I really think I did. And then the other thing is that there's these like little divine signatures. Those animals were put there. The water bottle was put there so that I could learn this lesson, you know, and I could share it with other people. After that race, it really told me something. I started training and I started surfing and I started paddling. And, you know, I feel like that was the race that really took me to the next level of being a competitive athlete. In 2012, Anne competed in her first race, the International Va'a Federation World Championships. The IVF is the international governing body for the sport of outrigger canoeing. They hold the worlds every year, and paddlers from all over the globe compete in sprint and distance races. Isn't that like a pretty major leap, like a huge competition for your first competition? Yeah. That's like saying that's like, oh man, like, hey, throwing this football is like a pretty neat thing. And then like a week later, you're playing in the Super Bowl or something. This is kind of outrageous to me. Yeah. Nothing's normal about my life. <laughs> I already told you that. <laughs> Coming up after the break, Anne starts competing on the world stage. Anne sets her sights on the Paralympics. In 2012, Anne moved to Utah to get a master's in rehabilitation counseling. But just because she was landlocked didn't mean she wasn't going to get on the water. That group of friends from Access Surf that Anne had been spending on-water time with in Hawaii, they started to travel to competitions all over the world representing the U.S. And since Anne is such a badass, they invited her to compete with them at the World Championships. And just like that... She joined Team USA. She was the first native female Hawaiian on the team, ever. A fact that was not lost on Anne. I want to represent my culture. 
especially in like paddling and surfing, those are two very culturally rooted sports. You know what I mean? Like paddling and surfing came from Hawaiians. And I ended up getting third in the V1. And I thought to myself, hey, I could do this um, while I'm getting my master's degree. And there's a body of water that was close to where I lived in, in the mainland. And so I decided to take that up and start paddling um, competitively. Were you intimidated? Were you excited? Were you scared? I mean, how did it feel to actually paddle in those things? You all those things at once? Yeah, it was amazing. People from all over the world who are the best in their in their sport are coming and competing for these awards. And I learned so much that that time. And I really, you know, it really put me to the next level of, you know, because these people, they cross train, they, you know, everything they do in life is to become better athletes, right? Of course, they work and things like that. Well, some of them do. But you know what I mean? They had <laughs> yeah. like this whole other life of training and becoming this elite athlete. And I realized that I need to change a few things. I mean, there's one thing to have natural talent. And then there's another part of it to be able to be trained and to work on that natural talent. In 2013, Anne started to train with coach Stephen Knight. Knight was relatively new to working with para-athletes. He had been doing it for about three years, but he was highly sought after by top paddlers. What did the training with Stephen look like? (laughs) Oh, it was super hard. (laughs) (laughs) I had to learn to love the pain, and so he put me in positions where I had pain a lot. So not only physical pain, but mental pain and spiritual pain. He would make me do drills that, you know, I was ready to be done on. And he would make me follow him until I felt like I was going to break. And then he would push me for another hour. So I wasn't only physically being broken down, I was emotionally getting broken down and mentally getting broken down. And There were times where I got home and I just like melted into my bed and cried because I thought I wasn't good enough or I didn't do as good as I wanted to do or whatever. But all of that was just the process. And then there were days where it was amazing. You know, he would give me these drills and he would show me, hey, this is what you did. And then I would have dropped five seconds off of my my race, which is huge for a one-minute race. You know what I mean? Yeah. With Stephen's help, Anne made it to the 2016 Rio Games. Again, a first. Anne was the first female Native Hawaiian to compete at the Paralympics in canoe racing. Unfortunately, things did not go as planned. Conditions on the water were abysmal. It was super choppy and windy, and the water was dirty and very, very polluted. Anne fell during the race. Once I came in and I went into the shower um, to get all that dirty water off of me, I just bawled. I mean, I cried it out. And then I was like, all right, time to pick myself up. This day is not going to define me. I know I could do better. And there is nothing that stops me now. And if it if it's trying to stop me, I will push through it. I, I'm super stubborn like that. And I think the games really taught me how to be super stubborn <laughs> about just pushing to your limits. And, you know, like somebody told me in 2015 that the 2016 is going to be the, the highlight of my life. 
you know, that that's going to be the top thing. I'm never going to top that. But actually, every year has been just better and better and better. So I I kind of put that away already. I don't I don't try to make the year following better. I just keep going forward. And going forward included getting two world championships. In 2016, Anne won the Women's V1 Ba'a Championship. And then in 2017, she took top place at the Women's Prone Adaptive Surfer Worlds. In 2018, Anne was inducted into the Hawaii Waterman Hall of Fame. She was the first ever adaptive athlete inductee. Waterman legend Billy Pratt called her to let her know. And I was like, what is that? I don't even know what that means. Like, because I thought those are, that's for like people who are old and not alive and, you know, like Dukahanamoku status. And, you know, he actually said something super, super poignant to me. He's like, actually, it's for people who like embody the spirit of Aloha. Um, like Duke Kahanamoka did, and really share that across the world. I mean, what did that feel like when he said that to you? I definitely cried. <laughs> I there were some tears that were shed. I think, you know, like you don't really know how much you've worked and how much you've done until you look back on it and start like naming the things that you've done and start like telling about the stories about it. And I think that that really shows the empower the power of extraordinary. Like you don't really know how much power you have until you're living your extraordinary. And then you still don't know until you look back at at what you've done. I think that induction gave me more motivation. You know, it's like one of those water bottles that I found in the water. It gave me motivation to know that I have more to give, that I have more on my pathway that, and it does, I mean, it has already, you know. That role that I'm filling as the as a Waterman Hall of Fame and the first adaptive athlete in Waterman Hall of Fame, it's just going to set someone up for the next, you know, the next person to do the same. So when we focus on the normal, then do we do we box ourselves in? I mean, do we lose something? <laughs> I don't know. I don't focus on the normal (laughs) anymore. (laughs) I mean, like, I know when I was in rehab, just focusing on being normal. Yes. That boxed me to like one prescribed typical lifestyle. It wasn't until I threw away that normalcy that I threw away that wanting of going through the typical developmental stages that allowed me to be who I am and to develop my own role in society to develop my own self, to, you know, utilize my skills, to, to utilize my purpose, that really gave me power. So when we're up against the wall, right, and we're, we're staring down obstacles, how do we focus on the extraordinary? How do we not lose sight of it? When I come against a wall, I really look at challenge as being a venue for growth. I always look at this wall as, okay, so do I have to break myself down so that I have to build myself up so that I can change my perspective here so that I can pass through this wall? You know, my father passed away when I was right in the thick of training for the Paralympics. And I could have like used that and said, I'm quitting. But actually what I use that is my my dad was my biggest supporter. And 
he would have wanted to see me continue the goal that I had to reach. And instead of using my dad as an excuse for, you know, I can't do this because of I'm sad or I can't do this because whatever, I used him as a, okay, motivation where, okay, it is because of my dad that I'm here today being able to be coached by Steven so that I can get on the water and I can push through this. A lot of times fear kind of stops us from doing things. So once you have that grounding and that identity and know that where you come from and who you are as a person and where, you know, who you have slated from, that is super empowering because you know that you're a person, that you're worthy to be here. You're, you have a great um, work and purpose in life. And so that fear kind of goes away, you know, and it allows you to open up a realm and a, a world that you never imagined that would happen. You can live that extraordinary life no matter what despair or defeat that you've experienced, and it will make you stronger. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Ann Yoshida. And to learn more about what she's doing, go ahead and check out our Instagram at Ann Yo Guava. That's spelled just like you think it is, Y-O Guava. And also check out our website, lifeaccess.com. If you like today's show, then hoot and holler about it, pals. You know, Safety Third is kind of like emotionally charged dancing. If you're all by yourself, you just kind of look like Kevin Bacon and Footloose when he's dancing in that warehouse all alone. <laughs> oh, so lonely. You want to be like Kevin Bacon at the end of Footloose when he's dancing with all his friends and everyone is smiling and having so much fun together. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So grab your crew and get funky together. Tell your friends and fam about the show. And if you have an idea for a guest, send us an email at hello at safetythirdpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at safetythird underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Music by my big brother, Brendan. Texting back is optional, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitzka Hall is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. <laughs>